All right. Welcome to the Missionary District Podcast. I am Deacon Amos. I'm Father Rob. And we're going to talk today about the validity of baptism in some ways. So we've done quite a few episodes on baptism and sort of baptism-related topics on this podcast. Um, And I think there are just a couple of outstanding questions that people have that seem to be fairly common that I thought we'd try to tackle today. And then this could change, but my intention is to maybe after that um, try to do a couple of episodes in the next few months on holy orders, uh, because I know there's, there's a lot of questions about that, like how important is that governmental structure? How is ordination related to the sacraments? Is it a sacrament? Um, what is the role of a bishop or a priest or a deacon? Things like that. I think we'd like to maybe jump into that. Uh, but as always, if you have questions or comments, things you'd like to see us talk about, please feel free to send those in to us at missionarydistrict at gmail.com. But for today, anyways, we're going to stick with baptism, and we're going to try to answer two questions mainly. First, what exactly is required for a baptism to be considered valid? And then second, a question that I get surprisingly often actually is, can I be baptized again? And so we'll try to hit both of those questions. Does that seem okay? Sounds great. (laughs) I don't know what else you could say to that. (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. So first off, Father Rob, whenever you are leading our services on Sundays and sort of setting expectations for the Eucharist, you always say something like, anyone who's a baptized Christian is welcome to receive with us, meaning you've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit into Christ and his church. And that seems like a very specific phrase. Could you explain sort of exactly what you mean by that? Because I think um, it probably largely answers our question about validity. Yeah, I mean, it's an important part of the service, actually. And when I started leading uh, our services, and uh, specifically in that section when we're talking about the Eucharist, uh, I realized that I needed to say something about it. I couldn't just leave it blank because there are different opinions on what all of this means, but you don't actually have time for a complete teaching either. So I almost had to come up with a creedal-like statement that I could say, explain, uh, when someone asks me what I mean by it. So this is, uh, you asking that question is really what the purpose of it was, is that if someone wondered, they could ask, and I would have a somewhat coherent answer for them in the midst of that. You know, as our listeners know, you can't talk about everything on a specific topic. It takes a long time. We've done, this is third or fourth on baptism now episode, and we could go many more if we wanted to, um, because it takes a long time to get through all of this. So when I'm saying this phrase, I'm speaking about Christian initiation. Baptism, as the Church has most commonly and historically understood and practiced it, which is with a specific form, uh, using specific matter, and with a specific intention. Simply, the form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The reason for this form comes from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, The matter we use is water, of course, which is for a few important reasons. Uh, First off, we know that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River with water. 
But even beyond that, we see many moments in Scripture pointing us to this reality of a baptism with water. A prime example is, say, John 3, where Jesus then tells uh, Nicodemus that we must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So, again, the form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and the matter is water. Now, intention is also important because when we are baptizing a person, no matter the age, we mean it as Jesus says it, being born again in water and spirit. It is entrance into the kingdom of God and our official welcome into union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, This is the washing of regeneration, as Titus puts it, uh, and the sacrament of participation in Christ's death and resurrection, as Paul says in Romans 6. So what I'm saying is that our intention or the intention of someone baptizing behind the use of the form must be what Holy Scripture and the creeds of the Church have meant by those words in order for it to be valid. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about intention, because without some level of explanation and nuance to what I just said, it could sound a little bit like I'm saying that there must be a precise intellectual assent or a precise sacramental theology by the one performing the baptism in order to have the right intent. But I would want to say that's not, first off, that's not what what I'm meaning exactly. And I want to remind our listeners of the previous episodes where we have talked about how faith is not an intellectual ascent. So what I am saying about intent is more about who the God is that we are talking about being baptized into. It's important that we do not mean something different when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm, I'm going to leave it there because I think we're going to flush that out more in the episode as, as we go on. Okay. So essentially you're saying... As long as you're validly baptized, and then a valid baptism is one that is with the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in water, yeah, and with the intention to do what the church and the scriptures intend by baptism, yeah. um, even if the minister doesn't have necessarily a fully correct understanding of what that is, yeah. they're, they're intending at least to do what the scriptures and and the church intends. Is that That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So I think by, you know, by being so specific on what makes a baptism valid, when you say that, we're also sort of implicitly excluding some things. Um, excluding some people. Um, yeah. and and by saying that you're you're signaling to some people if you're here and you're not validly baptized, then you shouldn't receive of the table. Yeah. And I would say in our context, Uh, And this wouldn't be the same everywhere, but for us, there's probably two subsets of people that we are making an effort to exclude from the table in that moment. If, you know, that that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but (laughs) 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 we're we're, we're just trying to let people know the proper way to do things. That's right. And so the first group is, it's, it's unfortunately not all that uncommon for people to have considered themselves Christians for a long time and yet they never actually received the sacrament of baptism. Mm -hmm. And so for that group, it's just a basic reminder that baptism precedes Eucharist. Um, And if you want to know more about that, we did an episode specifically on that topic a while ago that that you can look up. Uh, The second group is probably a bit more interesting, um, and that is that we live in an area in southern Alberta here that is heavily populated by Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. 
and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually are baptized in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and often will even consider themselves to be Christians. And I did a whole video series on this at one point, and so maybe I'll put a link to that in the description so that I don't need to sort of rehash everything. But essentially, whatever Latter-day Saints mean by the term Christ is not the same thing that we mean as Orthodox Christians when we use the term Christ. If, if I can just jump in for a second and just throw a plug forward for that video series, if you have any questions about this, the differences between uh, Mormonism or, or the Church of the Latter-day Saints and Christianity, please go look at that. Uh, I've watched it myself. I know many people that have watched it, and uh, the same response consistently comes out that Deacon Amos does an amazing job that isn't actually derogatory to any side. It is just explaining the core basics that are different, that it's not actually the same, even though we use some of the same language. And uh, it's it's very helpful. I've heard Mormons that have listened to it and thought it was helpful and Christians that have listened to it and thought it was helpful. So just an extra plug for that. So you really have to put it in the notes yeah. now. The link's got to go in. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for reading that off of the sheet that I gave you. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say everything right? <laughs> yeah, so the the question comes up a lot, I guess, is, you know, why would we specifically want to exclude members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And I think there's a couple of ways that we could think about this. First is kind of through that official definition of what makes a sacrament valid that you were talking about, like yeah. um, the form, the matter, and the intention. So they, they do have the same form and the same matter, but the intention of a Latter-day Saint baptism is not to do what the church does in baptism. So Latter-day Saints believe that the historic Christian church entered into a total apostasy around the death of the Twelve Apostles and remained there until Joseph Smith came and restored the gospel in the 19th century. And so whatever they mean by baptism, they are fundamentally not trying to do the same thing that we are trying to do. We could argue, of course, about who's right and who's wrong there, but there's no question that we are doing different things. They have intentionally and forcefully broken away from the established church and set themselves apart. And that's why they reject our baptism as well. So if a Christian converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they will have to be baptized anew in accordance with the ordinances of that religion. I think the second way to think about it is maybe a little bit more intuitive, uh, because maybe somebody's like, you know, I don't really buy this whole paradigm of form, matter, and intention anyway. Like, why should I believe that? Um, why would we exclude somebody that has been baptized in water in the triune name and says they're a Christian? I think I think another way to look at this is found in, in language itself. Like, our words are always a little bit imprecise, but they really matter. And the meaning of our words isn't found in the syllables themselves or in the, in the actual sounds that are coming out of our mouth, um, mm -hmm. but the meaning is in the referent. And so, for example, um, the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for some reason, this has actually led to some debates about what terms are acceptable to use for the Lord. And some people are really adamant that you, you have to say Yeshua because that's the Hebrew form and that's what he, he would have been called. And... Now, I don't even know Hebrew, but I'm almost certain that that's a mispronunciation anyways. And so if it's the exact sound that matters, if, it, if it's the exact word that matters, uh, then we're all in a little bit of trouble, I would think. The reality is that there are 
hundreds of different languages and hundreds of different adaptations of the name of Jesus, but they're all pointing to the same referent, Mm -hmm. right? Christians all over the world can worship the same Lord using different words, and that's actually okay. That's not a problem. That's actually really helpful, and that was the part earlier when I was talking about there's more nuance and explanation needed for intention. That piece right there is exactly it. It's um, as long as we are pointing to the right referent, what do we mean when we say these things? We don't have to have everything perfect around our theology, but we have to be pointed in the right direction. And so that's a very helpful nuance that's added to to what I was saying earlier. Right. And then at the same time, you could imagine that, that the reverse of that is also possible then, right? Like if we can use different words, but be referring to the same thing, then we could also be using the same word, but actually be referring to two or more different reference. Yeah. So a simple example would be something like the word bat. It can mean either an implement that you use to hit baseballs or intruders, um, or, or it's... intruders. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, <laughs> or it is a nocturnal flying creature that gives you coronavirus. Uh, (laughs) um, Or something like the word football. I actually use that example a lot. But somebody from Texas has a very different idea of what football is than someone from Spain. Um, And so if if you just start having a conversation, but don't tell them which sport you're talking about, it's going to be a very confusing conversation because the same word has very different meanings and they are irreconcilable. So even though we're using the same language, the same wording, we can't possibly be referring to the same thing. Uh, I really like the football analogy, especially because it's close enough that you could start to think that you're talking about the same thing. Right. Right. You could talk about competition. You could talk about sport. You could talk about teams. You could talk about all of these sorts of things. But then all of a sudden you talk about the number of players or the equipment, and you're starting to realize very quickly that wait, we're not talking about the same thing. Right. And I think the same sort of thing happens with sects of Christianity or other religions where, you know, we can talk about God and we can mean completely different things. Yeah. And so there has to be some explanation to right. that or understanding. Yeah, at a superficial level, it seems like you're talking about the same thing. And yeah. then you get a little bit deeper and it's like, oh, we're not talking about the same thing at all. That's right. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I won't get into specifics here. You can you can watch the videos for that if you want to go a little bit deeper. But there's so many differences between what Christians and Latter-day Saints mean when we talk about Christ that there is just no conceivable way that we have the same referent in mind. Like, we're, we're not talking about the same person. And so even though the baptismal formula is orthodox, uh, we can't possibly accept a Latter-day Saint baptism as valid. And again, all of those things are confirmed by the fact that they don't accept our baptisms either. Um, this, this all goes both ways. Our beliefs about Christ are mutually exclusive. Yeah, very helpful that it's both ways. Right. It, it's very helpful. Yeah. It never, when, when people ask about it, it never seems to be that way because right. it's always like, you know, why are the mean Christians gatekeeping against yeah. the Latter-day Saints? Yeah. Um, it, it goes both ways. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There is a mutual recognition <laughs> that uh, we are not compatible religions. Yeah, yeah. yeah we mean different things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I thought uh, before we move on to our next question, I think any conversation about the validity of baptism will inevitably cause a few people to become anxious about their own baptism. Um, I actually wondered if 
we should even have this conversation because of that. Um, I was a little bit worried about that. But maybe if we could just take a couple of minutes here to alleviate some of those concerns and tell people what they should do if they're not sure whether or not their baptism was a valid one. Yeah, super helpful. Uh, I think the first thing that anyone should do if they're listening to this and that does make them nervous, uh, the first thing to do is to remember the grace of God. Yeah. Really simply. Um, in everything that we've talked about with baptism, that is always an undercurrent we keep coming back to, is remember that God is gracious and he cares and he's there for you and he's walking you with you through this. So um, he is watching over you. So if that's you, you're feeling anxious, uh, just take a second, breathe, relax. It'll be okay. <laughs> um, you have a very soothing voice for that too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, I hope. <laughs> so, for real, I really, if, if there is anxiety for you, I, I really do want you to take a moment and just relax and know that God's got you by the hand and, and you're okay. What probably would be helpful is to take the opportunity then to reach out to one of your priests or pastors and talk to them about your baptism. If, in the rare case, that you were right to ask and to talk through your baptism with your priest, and it seems highly probable that your baptism would not have been usual to the form, matter, and intention of, of the sacrament of baptism, meaning we can't prove it, but there is a high possibility that your baptism would be considered invalid, we can do what's called a conditional baptism, which is not to say that we are rebaptizing you, but are saying that we want to carefully make sure that this has been done right for you. So in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, which is the, the prayer book that we use here at Via Lethbridge, um, it actually gives instructions about conditional baptism, saying essentially that if we cannot know for certain, but it is probable that the form or matter was not followed, we, we add, if you are not already baptized, use their name, and then follow with the formula saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit uh, and baptize them in water. Now, again, to be clear, though, this option is not in reference to someone who was baptized, say, in the Church of Latter-day Saints, as we were just talking about. We know for certain that is an invalid baptism. We would do a baptism for them. Right. This is if you are unsure and there's a probable cause as to why we think it might not have been done properly then we would follow the conditional baptism liturgy as the... So it would have to be some uncertainty, but with a pretty high level of grounding that's in right. that uncertainty. Like, yes, that's yeah. right. We More times than not, and I you know, I started by saying in the rare case, yeah. um, I've had, similar to you, I've had many people ask about rebaptism, um, And some of the time that question is because they're unsure, not even because they're, you know, it's not always because they learned more and so they want that, though there is that question. Um, they just don't know what their baptism was like or they can't remember or they're not sure what this group believed in those moments. And so uh, it is rare, but there is a reason that it's in the prayer book. Right. Um, and that is because we know that there are the cases where that is probably helpful. Right. Yeah, that's great. I think, I think it's really good to study these things and obviously to do things in a way that is consistent with the historic church. Um, at the same time, I think too much emphasis on a conversation like this can lead to a sort of legalism or even a superstitious view of baptism 
that I just don't think is helpful. And so I just want to really emphasize that it, that it is rare. It is very rare. Yeah. It most likely does not apply to you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, talk to your priest about that. Yeah. And I just want to steer away from this legalistic or superstitious view. A, a story that popped up a couple of years ago, um, there was this Catholic priest in the news. Do you remember this? I do, yeah. And it came out that he'd been using the wrong baptismal formula for his entire ministry career. Which is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have caught it at some point. Yeah, somebody should have caught it <laughs> yeah. earlier than they did. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how long that was, something like 20 years or something. Yeah, it was a long time. But as far as I know, it wasn't an intentional mistake. Like, he wasn't doing this to make a statement. He wasn't starting his own sect or his own cult yeah. or something like that. He didn't hold any views about baptism that were unorthodox. But as you've already said, that wouldn't matter anyways. Right. He just somehow learned the phrase wrong. Like yeah. he, he was saying, we baptize you instead of I baptize you. Yeah. And just nobody really noticed for a long time. But when they did, then they started to go back and try to find everyone he had baptized so that they could give them a conditional baptism. And in my opinion, that is just going way too far. Yeah. Like I, I think maybe you disagree. I don't know. But yeah. I think it's just it's disturbing the peace of those people and creating some anxiety that I just don't think needs to be there. Yeah. Like salvation isn't a checklist. We, we, of course, need to follow the Lord. We need to follow the instructions that he's given us through the scriptures and through the church as best we can. But we can also trust him to take care of us when, when we fail. And so I just really don't like an approach to things that can lead people down a path of legalism or superstition. Yeah, and really comes back to, uh, you know, as we talked about with the conditional baptism, start with grace. Yeah. Start there. Start that... God is gracious, and he's walking this out, and he's walking with you lovingly. Uh, he's not going to condemn you over someone accidentally saying we instead of I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank goodness he's gracious to us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now that we brought that up, though, I realize we probably need to answer that question. Um, so the reason we say I baptize you and not we baptize you is because the person baptizing is always standing in the place of Christ. Yeah. So St. Augustine says, uh, even those whom Judas baptized, Christ baptized. Yeah. He says, they whom a drunkard baptized, those whom a murderer baptized, those whom an adulterer baptized, if it was the baptism of Christ, were baptized by Christ. Um, and I, I just love that. Yeah. Like nobody wants, of course, to be baptized by a murderer or an adulterer or a Judas. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't invalidate the grace of God working through the sacraments. We're, we're, we're always meant to be looking past the person administering the sacraments to Christ himself and to see Jesus as the source of our salvation and the source of our new life. Yeah. Like we are never putting our trust in the minister. We're always looking to Christ and receiving grace from his hand. And every minister has some deficiencies, but their weaknesses and their failures do not impair the working of the sacraments. That's, that's tied to the promises of God. Mm -hmm. So it's Jesus who imparts his grace to us. It's Jesus who promises to give himself to us in the sacraments. Which I think is a pretty good intro for some podcasts on holy orders. <laughs> As <laughs> yeah, you were saying enough, that, yeah. I thought... That's a good way of beginning a discussion about holy orders. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, on to our last question. Um, I've found that as people begin to love the sacraments and to see the beauty of baptism, there seems to be a strong desire to experience it again. 
And so probably once or twice a year, somebody will ask me if they can just get baptized again. And they're looking for an experience that they can remember, especially if they were baptized as an infant previously, and they want a meaningful experience. And what's the harm, right? Like baptism is normally only once, but that doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> I'm going to let you answer this. <laughs> yes, of course it does matter. The, the desire is good. You know, I like to see that desire in people and um, it's signaling this, this newfound deep love of, of the sacraments. That's a, that's a really good thing. The fact that somebody's seeing the beauty and the value of baptism and wanting to fully enter into it with their whole heart, that's a great thing, and I want to foster that. But rebaptism is is really problematic, and probably for a couple of reasons. The first thing I would say is that while it is, of course, physically possible at least to get wet more than once in the waters of baptism, it's not spiritually or sacramentally possible. Um, in John chapter 13, when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, he explains to Peter he says, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And this has always been understood as explaining baptism and Eucharist. Baptism is a bath and Eucharist is a foot washing. One baptism is sufficient for all time, but the Eucharist is repeatable. It's something that we do regularly and need to do regularly. And I think Paul's words in Ephesians are relevant here, too. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the unity of the church. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Uh, that's a lot of ones. <laughs> and we certainly don't deem it insignificant that baptism would be included in a list like that. And so, the scriptures are pretty straightforward on this point. Baptism is just non-repeatable. As the Nicene Creed says, there is one baptism for the remission of sins. But what's the harm? Uh, why not just do it anyway? Or, or why not pretend that there's some doubt about the validity of their baptism so that we can conditionally baptize everyone that wants to be baptized again? Well, we've used an analogy to marriage before with baptism that I think is really helpful here. And if we think in those terms, I think it's probably more obvious to people that it wouldn't be appropriate or even possible for me to, say, marry my wife again, right? We're already married. If we held a wedding ceremony and invited our friends and went through all of the motions again, there would be a lot of confusion about the state of our relationship, um, and for good reason. You, you, you just can't do that twice. We could do something like a reaffirmation of our marriage vows. Um, and every year at the Easter Vigil, there's an opportunity for all Christians to reaffirm their baptismal vows. But we can't be married again, and we can't be baptized again. You could hold a ceremony in theory, but it has no effect. And it's problematic because it, it starts to cast doubt and confusion. And so it seems to me that a second baptism would imply, even if unintentionally, that the first baptism was invalid or ineffectual. And that's not something that we want to say about baptism. Mm -hmm. It's damaging both to the faith of individual people and to the church as a whole, even if the person getting rebaptized understands that it's not real because it's a public event. Yeah. And so, you know, at an individual level, 
it can cause the people who witness it to question the validity of their own baptism or to think that it's possible to have a better or worse baptism or something like that. Um, it can cause people to think that, you know, somehow if their faith had been more active or if they'd had more knowledge, that they would have been able to receive more out of it. And that's just not true. That's not true of baptism. They're not, there are not degrees of baptism. And the grace that you received in baptism is continually available to you. It didn't go anywhere. You didn't miss anything. And there's, there's nothing stopping you from entering into it now that you do appreciate the beauty of the sacraments. And then, so that's sort of at, a, at an individual level and for the people witnessing it. And then at a larger scale, it's damaging as well because if we're regularly rebaptizing people or even being a little bit too free with our use of conditional baptisms, that sends a strong message to other churches that we do not recognize them as being in Christ. And, you know, we, we're in a place, we want to see the divisions of the church begin to heal. We, we don't want to exasperate them. And so... Again, rebaptism implies that the first baptism was invalid or ineffectual, and that's just not a message that we would ever want to endorse. Is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think that there's a lot that you've said there that's actually really helpful. The wedding connection is good because, you know, you imagine you could, you could hold a similar ceremony that looks like a wedding ceremony and reaffirm and say that all you're doing is reaffirm, but you don't say a year after that, we've been married for one year right? because we were actually really married only a year ago. You know, it's a reaffirmation because you were already married previously. And maybe your reaffirmation is important to you because the marriage got difficult for a while and you needed to reaffirm what you really believe happened previously. Yeah. That what you're already in is what you're affirming, not, I'm doing it again because I'm not really in it. Um, and so I think it's a really helpful view because we can be confused by what's really happening. Um, and I think that just just that idea of the fact that we don't get a better or worse baptism, yeah. um, that is very important. And it reminds me a little bit of, you know, as a kid when I used to think that I'd have to get saved again over and over again. Right. Right. That every time I sinned, maybe I, maybe God has to save me again. And in reality, the answer was no, I grow in my faith and in my understanding of his grace and I can repent, but I'm already his. Uh, and in maturity, I came into that. But I don't now look back and say, you know, that 13th time that I prayed, <laughs> that was really when it took. Um, I don't have to do that because I really was in him already. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I think that sort of points to this other problem that's sort of tied up with that as well, which is like, if I feel like I need to be baptized again, because now I know more about baptism, or now I know more about the Lord, or my faith has grown, or whatever, then what's stopping me from feeling that way again in a week, or in a month, or in a year? That's right. Like, it, it will be this continual need to get re-baptized all the time. Yeah. Because my faith is always growing, I hope. You know, my knowledge of the Lord is always growing. My appreciation for the Lord's grace is always growing, or at least it should be. Um, and we all have a very immature faith at the time of our baptism. That is the nature of a rite of initiation. Yeah. Uh, but the efficacy of baptism is not dependent on the person receiving it. Baptism is first an act of God's divine grace. And I just think we need to resist the temptation to make it about the individual and their experience of it. Absolutely. 
entirely. I, th- I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Very, very helpful to consider that no matter when you were baptized, it being the initiation should tell you that that's the beginning of your knowledge. Right. Right. That's, that's the point. You are supposed to go beyond that uh, moving forward. So very helpful. Uh, maybe I'll bring all of these thoughts together as kind of a summary, and, and hopefully I can cover what we've done uh, succinctly. Um, it's really helpful to pull out each of the points about rebaptism because I think that we can be excited about something and unintentionally undermine what God's already done without realizing that we're doing that. And we need to be careful about that. So I think where we've gone in the podcast is that when talking about baptism, it's important to remember that there are valid and invalid baptisms, Uh, but that the barriers to what makes a baptism valid might be different than we think they are. Our natural tendency to what is a valid baptism or not might be more like what we just talked about, a desire to know God more or an experience when in reality those aren't the barriers at all. Um, the barriers to a valid baptism are found in form, matter, and intention, meaning we baptize using the form, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit with the matter of water and with the intention that is about union with Christ through the washing of regeneration and participation in Christ's death and resurrection into God as he is defined by Holy Scripture and the authorized creeds. That means that if the form, matter, and intention are the same, even when it's done by a different Christian tradition uh, than we're currently a part of, or by someone we realize later wasn't a very holy person at all, or didn't know as much as maybe we thought they, they would have, we do not need to be rebaptized because the sacrament is valid, and we will grow in our faith and reception of its benefits for the rest of our lives. If we are unsure of our baptism and think it's possible that we were baptized using a different form, matter, or intention, that someone could then speak to their priest about whether a conditional baptism should be performed. But again, it's the rarity. Um, And then lastly, if a baptism is performed with the same form and matter, but with an entirely different understanding of who God is and a different intention of what baptism does, as we talked about with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, it would be considered invalid. Does that sound like a fair summary of what we've covered? Yeah, I think that sounds great. And, you know, one thing I really love about this discussion is it just reminds me again of the grace of God and that it's all about Jesus. Yeah. Like we're always, always, always just looking to Jesus. Yeah. And that really is a simple answer for all of these things. And I think that that really comes back to valid or invalid. The reason to talk about it is not to bring the barriers. It's to point to Jesus. Yep. It's to say, was it, was it to be with him? Is it to grow in faith? Is it to know God? Great. (laughs) That's good. Um, And so I think that when we talk about validity, I think people get nervous and just they think this means there's all of a sudden all these barriers or hoops they have to jump through. And it's just not the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not erecting these, like like you say, all these barriers that are, you know, unscriptural or something like that where, well, you have to jump through 
this hoop and that hoop and yeah. then this hoop and make sure you get them in the right order and then yeah. uh, and then we'll baptize you. No, it's uh, it's all about Jesus, yeah. and we're just trying to do things in the way that um, is true to the scriptures yeah. and true to how the church has understood the scriptures through the ages. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for chatting with me today, Rob. My pleasure. And uh, we'll see you again soon. If you're lucky.